Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. And I am excited to open up the Word of God with you today and also that we have come all the way to Matthew chapter 12. (laughs) Matthew 12 continues what we've already seen in Matthew's Gospel. But now, increasingly, we see it, how great Jesus is and how evil mankind is. Early on in Jesus' life, uh, Herod attempted to kill Jesus as a child and it foreshadowed the, the Pharisees' hostility to him as an adult. The more Jesus attacked the religious leaders of, of his day, the more they, he exposed their, their hearts full of sin and their need for repentance, the more they attacked him. And opposition to Jesus continued to grow and nowhere was it more evident than in, in the, the topic of, related to observing the Sabbath, which is what we look at today. And in these eight verses today, we are going to see a situation that led to the Pharisees' unjust accusation, and as a result, Jesus' uncompromising, unwavering correction of them. So if you would, stand with me to read God's Word, and it's in Matthew 12, 1 through 8, we'll be reading. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read when David, what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which... It was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And Lord God, we thank you that we can open your word with freedom to this morning. We thank you, Lord, that we have confidence that you will speak to us as we we read, as we listen, as we seek to apply. And Lord, we trust you. Uh, We we trust you, God, the Holy Spirit, to, to apply your word to our lives today. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The idea of Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath might not sound too applicable to us today, but it really is. His Lordship extends past the actual Sabbath to the activities of the day and and actually every day. And the problem was, in, in this setting that we just read, that the Pharisees thought that they were the lords of the Sabbath. There was a little competition here for Jesus' place. They were the self-proclaimed morality police of their day. They were always telling people where they were off and where they weren't right, and they were always coming up with more and more rules that people had to follow. They were so dialed into finding something wrong. You know how that is with people who are negative and condemning and critical that they will find something wrong even when there is nothing wrong those are the pharisees now they would not acknowledge jesus's authority they they wouldn't do that and 
As a result, they did not praise him appropriately, and they mistreated others unfairly. They condemned him and others. And the message in here for us is, is quite simple, but it is profound. It is, it is that unlike the Pharisees, Jesus wants us to understand his authority as Lord so that we would praise him appropriately and not condemn others unfairly. Two things we struggle with, praising God appropriately and also unfairly condemning others. Let's begin in verse 1 and, and, and see. Well, verse 1 It says that at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields. He was walking through fields of grain on the Sabbath with his disciples. His disciples became hungry, so they started picking heads of the grain and and, uh, rubbing them in their hands and and getting the the grain off out of there and eating. They were were doing that. There was nothing huge. In fact, um, they weren't stealing. These were not their fields, but they weren't stealing. It was a common practice in those days that people could eat the grain at the edges of fields. It was a common practice, and and Scripture even instructed landowners and farmers to make this provision for those in need. Don't gather all the grain all the way to the edges of your fields. Allow there to be some for orphans and widows and and traveling people coming by, those who were in need. So Jesus, very interestingly, doesn't correct his disciples for doing what they did. They just did it, and, and he condoned it. It was, it was not wrong. They, now, the thing to remember here, though, is that the disciples were not always guiltless. That's an, an obvious one for us. They, they, uh, they weren't always in the right. And more often, they were probably in the wrong, but here they were in the right. Now, Jesus... The sinless, sovereign Savior is always right. And and his disciples were often wrong, but here they are right. They're doing nothing wrong. But the Pharisees found fault in what they did. In verse 2, we see their unjust accusation of Jesus and his men. They were watching him closely. It makes you wonder where they were and why they were in a a field on the Sabbath. And they have some kind of like, you know, I don't know, what's the hunter's blind where they were kind of watching behind the trees? I don't know what they were doing, but they, they were watching him closely, watching him like a hawk. And, uh, and, 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 and the word here, it says when they saw it, it, they were attending to him. They were watching him closely. This was not just something where they just happened to be out there and all of a sudden Jesus and his men walked by. They were, they were spying on Jesus and his disciples waiting for something they could find to trip him up. And so they say, look, or behold, and we've seen in Matthew that this word behold, this word look, is a, is a huge, significant word, and it means pay attention, listen, something significant is going to happen. So when the Pharisees say it, they're calling attention to themselves as authorities. And they say, behold, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now it implies something here. It implies that Jesus wasn't properly overseeing his men or that he is somehow condoning wrong. Jesus and his men had crossed over their man-made line and they were going to do something about it. 
It's thought that the Pharisees may have charged them with up to four offenses in the picking of the grain and, and eating, that of reaping as they picked, and winnowing as they, as they rubbed it in their hands, and, and threshing and grinding, and even preparing a meal by doing that. It sounds ridiculous to us, but the, the, um, the Pharisees had a list of 39 kinds of work you could not do on the Sabbath. They ruled the Sabbath with an iron fist, watching to see if anyone would step over the line. And, and everyone was on edge. It was, a, it was a day of anxiety. It was not a day of rest. Not a day for freedom to worship, because people were watching you to see if you did it right. No one wants to live under that kind of scrutiny but god had created the sabbath for man in genesis 2 and verse 3 we see that god blessed the seventh day sanctified it because in it he rested from his work of creation the lord made it a special day of rest and remembrance for his people to remember his creation to remember his provision of life to remember his sustaining of their lives on a daily basis And so one day a week he gave them, and and really it was merciful that he gave them this one day a week. And that's why Jesus said in verse 7, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He was merciful that God gave them one day out of seven due to the capacity of mankind, due to our weakness, due to the fact that we need to rest, that we can't be working all the time. So he gave this gift, merciful gift to to cease from labor, to, to rest, to not be active. You also see it in, in the fourth command in, in Exodus chapter 20, and you can go there with me. Exodus chapter 20, and verses 9 through 11, speak of the Sabbath day. <clears throat> and, and by the way, as you're turning there, Sabbath is from the Greek word sabbaton, Uh, the seventh day, which is from the Hebrew word Shabbat, and which means to bring to an end, to stop, basically to rest. And and here is what it says in Exodus 20, beginning at verse 9, excuse me, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. There you have the fourth command, and, and God had given specific instructions for this day of rest, for the Sabbath but nothing like what the, the Pharisees had made it out to be. They had, for really for several hundred years, the groups of rabbis had added rule after rule after rule, and, and most of the time going way beyond Scripture and often even going against Scripture in making these rules of things you could and could not do. And it was very oppressive. It was, it was, it was very restrictive. But think with me for a moment about what what came right before these verses we've read this morning. Jesus had spoken words of comfort and joy in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. He had said, come to me, believe and be saved, all you who are weary, 
from working so hard to earn salvation and all who have had the burden of unnecessary expectations put on your backs, come to me, be saved, believe, and, and, and take my yoke upon you. The, the, the yoke that has been thrown over your shoulders, reject that and take mine instead. What happened, though, is that the Pharisees here are, in reality, accusing Jesus of wrongly breaking the very thing he created for his glory and his purpose. The very thing that he had just almost been alluding to in the verses before. You will find rest for your souls. So in verses 3 through 8, in chapter 12, we see Jesus' uncompromising correction of the Pharisees. What do Jesus' words get him, by the way? Just, you don't have to go any further than verse 14 in the same chapter. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They wanted to kill him as a result. That's what he got. That was the, that was the upshot of him saying the words that we're going to look at now. Now, he was doing this to help them see the error of their ways. He, he wanted them to praise him appropriately and to not condemn others and so he corrects them he wasn't afraid to do so he he did so and he pointed them and and then really to and pointing now us to three big themes that all point to him the cool thing about this today is that we get to learn from the pharisees error and and if you read the gospels very often you can learn a lot from their errors because Jesus has corrected them a lot. But here we get to to learn from the Pharisees' error. It's always better to learn from someone else's mistakes, isn't it? You know? Instead of having to go make the mistake yourself, just follow the example. Now, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us how that ought to have happened, but still we still make those same mistakes. And and we probably still will. But the idea here is is that we get to learn from their error... And then they weren't the only ones who ever misunderstood Jesus or had trouble treating others properly. Again, we we struggle with that. So these three big themes are going to help us to praise him appropriately while not condemning others unfairly. And and the first theme has to do with God's word. God's word. You see it in verses 3 through 5. And he takes them straight to the scriptures. He takes them right to the scriptures which they were guilty of twisting and mangling, and, and they did that for their own selfish ends. But he showed them the true intent of God's word. And he challenged them. Look at verse 3. He says to them, Have you not read? Now, you're going to see it again in verse 5. Those same words. Have you not read? And, and these words were, were a huge insult to them. A huge insult to them. They prided themselves in knowing and and teaching the word they knew the word inside out no one was going to come and tell them what the word said and jesus now is is pointing out to them uh, very clearly very strongly have you not read this didn't you get it and he gives two examples they should have known the first was the example of david and you see it it, it, it's, it's referring to to um I believe it's 1 Samuel 21, uh, where David was... Now, think about David for a moment. He's using David as an example. David is the superhero of the Jews, okay? He was uh, lifted higher in their minds than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, he was their prophet, their, their priest, their king. Their, he was their, their, um, their poet, their, their soldier. He, he was the one that they looked to the most. And so it, it's kind of appropriate that Jesus would say, by the way, 
Remember David? That, that had to hurt them. That had to hurt them bad. And, and, and they were smarting. And while they're still smarting, uh, Jesus explains to them what he's trying to say to them. He says, look, and I'll go into a little more detail here because they knew the story. When David and his men had run away from Saul, they had come from Gibeah to Nob where the, ta- the tabernacle was. And they, they went to Ahimelech, the priest, and asked him for food. And the only food that he had in the place was the bread of the presence, the showbread, the bread that was placed out uh, to the Lord. It wasn't to be eaten, but it was the only stuff in the place they were in great need of food, and, and he gave them this consecrated bread, the, the bread of the presence. And, and in this instance, God made an allowance. God did not say, hey, I'm displeased over this. God let it go. God didn't correct either Ahimelech or David. And, and what we see is that God let a ceremonial rule be broken for the sake of a greater need that was present. He met the needs of his beloved people in this instance by, by, by bending this rule. Now the second example that, that, that uh, Jesus gives to these Pharisees is in verse 5. He said, have you not read in the law? Now it, it's, it's, it's getting worse than personal. These were the, these were the teachers of the law. These were, these were the, the, the authority figures. And now they're, in a sense, being shamed uh, into, into realizing that they had really messed up. He, he gives the example of the priest, and, and it's kind of referenced really in Numbers 28, 9, and 10. But basically, it's, the upshot is this. And, and by the way, the Pharisees would have known this instantly because they like to quote this. The idea, this, and they read this. They, the whole thing is that the, the priests were supposed to work on the Sabbath day. So in essence, they were breaking the Sabbath to keep the Sabbath. And it was something that God ordained. It was the way God made it work. And, and it, it, wasn't, it wasn't wrong. It was perfectly all right. It was made by God. But what, they were, what Jesus is showing them here is that they were ignoring the true teaching of, of God's word. And they had taken a stance above and over the word of God rather than under the word of God, under its authority. And, and how easy it is to do that, isn't it? How easy it is to be so close to the truth and to even know it and to, to pride ourselves in knowing the word of God that we become almost an authority over it rather than being under it. And therefore, it's easy to then to act in ways that go against it. See, they should have been praising Jesus rather than condemning him and they were doing the opposite and and from this we learn something and jesus showed, shows us this here is that god's word handled accurately must govern our behavior it's easy to say well god's word must govern our behavior and then go out and 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 misuse it to make it fit what we want it to say but but the the key word here is handled accurately and that's what he was showing the pharisees you are twisting the scriptures you are bending them to you're even going so far outside of them you're not, you're not in line with what has already been, been revealed. So the idea here is that God's word handled accurately must govern our behavior. Now that takes hard work. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, and kids, if you're, if you're in Awana, you know the verse, and if, if you're a Awana leader, you know the verse, right? 
Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That idea of rightly dividing is, gives two pictures, one of a, of a farmer with a plow, uh, build, uh, driving a straight furrow so that you uh, have a good place to put the seeds in. And the other idea is of a road maker cutting a straight road, a straight path. In those days, they didn't have roads like we would know them, and more like paths through towns and even grain fields uh, to get here and there. And, and the idea here is that God's word handled accurately must govern our behavior so that we must handle it accurately. We must follow 2 Timothy 2.15. And it's all the more crucial in this day in which we live where scripture is routinely twisted and mangled and misused by Christians, let alone non-Christians. We need to be careful. We need to let God's word speak. We need to take it at face value and be very careful in our, in our, in our treatment of it and in our interpretation of it. We need to believe it. We need to live it. We need to obey it. But first, we need to know what it says. See, the Pharisees had gotten so caught up in their multitude of rules and regulations that they were ignoring what the word even said. It's true with a lot of Christians. They can tell you what it means, but not what it says. Focus on what it says first. So the first theme is God's word. And, and the, the God's word must govern our behavior. God's word handled accurately must govern our behavior. The second theme has to do with God's will. God's will, you see it in verse 7. He is showing them the error of their ways very clearly, that they were hateful and not merciful, that they were not seeking what God wanted. And in, in, in verse 7, we basically learn that God's will, properly understood, must be our deepest desire. God's will properly understood. There's a key word there, properly understood. It's so easy for someone to say, God told me. Now, how do you argue with that, right? You know, once someone said to me, well, God, God told me you're supposed to do that. And I said, well, he didn't tell me yet. You know, it would be helpful, wouldn't it? God's will properly understood must be our deepest desire. See, they thought they were doing what God wanted, but they were so far off base, they were, they were out of, of the ballpark. And, but Jesus shows them they didn't understand his agenda. Here's what he said in verse 7. He said, if you had known what this means. Now, he has already said to them, haven't you ever read this? Give me a break. Now, he says, if you understood it. It wasn't just that they didn't read it. They didn't get it. And they prided themselves in getting it. They were the the getters of truth. They were the givers of truth. They were the ones that told everyone else what it meant. He says this. He says, if you had understood what this means, and he quotes Hosea 6 and verse 6 for the second time in this gospel. Let me remind you where he he first did it. It's, It's in chapter 9 and verse 13. Chapter 9 and verse 13 or he quotes the entire verse. Here in chapter 12, he he quotes half of the verse. But basically, when he called Matthew, the tax collector, follow me, and Jesus is reclining at the table in, in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew 9, 10. And when the Pharisees saw this, here it is again, they're, they're, they're zeroing in, they're, they're focusing on what's Jesus doing wrong. Everyone, people like, some people like to do that, don't they? What are other people doing wrong? Okay? The Pharisees saw this, and they said to his disciples, 
so this time they didn't go to Jesus. They went to the disciples. They take, come here, come here for a second. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's like ridiculous. That's an abomination. That's wrong. It's sinful. When he heard it, Jesus heard it, he said this. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. He already told them that. He said, go and learn it. What means? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So here in chapter 12, he says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. You wouldn't have condemned the innocent. Now, the word desire here, I desire mercy, is the, is the Greek word for will, thalo. It's, it's will. I, here's what I want. Here's what God wants. And, and if they had wanted what God wanted, they would have been merciful would have been kind wouldn't have condemned jesus wouldn't have condemned his men to condemn here is is different than judge okay because it's it's we throw the word judge around a lot and i'm going to look at that in a few minutes but this is the a stronger word than judge it's condemn it basically means to make the decision of judging and then pass the sentence okay go a step further and and basically act as judge and jury and give a penalty and, and then it, what, what goes along with this is the idea that as you give the penalty you consider yourself right in doing so so condemning is a highly personal term it's an idea of, of judging but not just judging going and, and, and basically con, uh, passing the sentence and being very self-righteous in it knowing, thinking that you're right and, and, and Jesus said, if you would have known what this means, you wouldn't have condemned the innocent, uh, the one without guilt, the ones without guilt. They had con con convicted Jesus' disciples, but most dangerously, they convicted Jesus himself. So the idea here is that God's will, properly understood, must be our deepest desire. Because Jesus said, you didn't understand this. You didn't understand what I want. The third theme has to do with God's greatness. God's greatness. And we see it in verses 6 and 8. So look at verse 6 with me. Jesus says to them, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Now again, you know, this is a, a, a confrontation and, and they slammed him with the charge that he broke the law. And so he gives them the right answer, which is himself. Uh, the something greater than the temple is Jesus himself. Some people think it's the kingdom of God, but you can't really separate the two anyway because Jesus came to bring the kingdom. But Herod's temple in Jerusalem is, is worthy of note. It was 15 stories high. It, it took 18 months to build. It was, it was their, their pride and joy. And he's telling them, I'm, I'm, you don't get it, but right before you, speaking to you, is some, someone greater than the temple. They weren't acknowledging it. In fact, they refused to acknowledge it. But the idea here is that um, the Lord of glory was greater than their greatest building. Even the building they, they dedicated to serving the Lord of glory. And, and, and they were still going to condemn him. We, we know that. We, we know the end of the story. They were going to nail him to a cross and, and condemn him and kill him, revealing the depth of their depravity, which was the very depravity that Jesus had come to earth to die for. But what we, what we learn from this is that God's greatest uh, greatness, his greatness revealed in Christ must be our primary focus. Not just a, 
you know, plain rap type greatness that was just in general, but his greatness revealed in Christ. Jesus is saying, I am greater than the temple. Then he says in verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So I'm over the temple and I'm over the Sabbath. I'm greater than both. Jesus' favorite name for himself while he was on earth is Son of Man. He used the term, it's very interesting, but in the Old Testament, this term was used somewhat um, ambiguously. Okay? It was not always specified. Uh, Ezekiel, I'm reading, uh, you read through Ezekiel, and, and, and he's called the Son of Man. And, but it's not always clear in the Old Testament, who's this referring to? But Jesus makes it very clear, and he uses the term to clarify who he is as the Son of Man. That he is the Lord over all creation. That he is the, the humble servant that, that came to forgive sins. That, that he is the, the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, that were, was going to redeem his people. His substitutionary death, redeeming his people from, for the, from their sins. And, and he is the great king and judge of all the earth, who will one day return in glory, bringing his kingdom with him. This is a a clear thing for us that God's greatness in Christ must be our primary focus. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, we are, we are uh, instructed to fix our eyes on Jesus, the, the, the author and perfecter of faith. Now, the, the Pharisees fixed their eyes on Jesus, but in, in a really bad way. This fixing is a good thing, okay? It's a worshiping thing. Uh, in Romans 13, 14, we're told to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. In 2 Timothy 2.8, we're, in, we're instructed to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended of David, according to Paul's gospel, according to the gospel that he was given to preach. But Jesus is to be worshipped, he's to be feared, he's to be trusted, he's to be obeyed, he, he is to be listened to, and, and that should be our primary focus. It was the furthest thing from, from the Pharisees' minds. So those are the three big themes. God's, God's word, God's will, and God's greatness. As you think about these things, and as I think about them, there are several questions that come to my mind relating to these, these verses, as well as some specific implications and applications that, that spring from these, these three big themes of God's word and God's will and God's greatness. And, and I just want to uh, hit all three of them and... and the first is this, and I think this is one that when you first saw the word Sabbath today, you thought, oh, hmm, I wonder what that means, you know, because for the question I have is, how do we keep the Sabbath holy today? I'm sure you're wondering, like, are we supposed to follow it strictly today? It's been a point of contention for hundreds and hundreds of years. You can say thousands of years. Now, in the Jewish context, the Sabbath was from sundown, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Um, Christians from the earliest days of the, of the church have set aside Sunday, the, uh, the, the day Christ rose from the dead, the Lord's day uh, for worship and fellowship. But many times, uh, uh, it's just those two are just kind of blended together and we figured, oh, we just, uh, you know, look, we, we have uh, relatives that couldn't do certain things on Sunday. Some of you say, hey, I, I can't do this, this, or this on Sunday because of the fourth command. So this is an important question. And, and the fact that the, the Pharisees had, were so hung up on the Sabbath is this is an important one for us to get or else we can go the way they went and we don't want to do that a um, couple ideas um, first of all Sunday and this is probably somewhat controversial but Sunday in scripture at least is not the Christian Sabbath 
as it was considered by many to be for many centuries and still is by some groups today. Um, a Christian, and, and, and I'll point you to Hebrews 4, uh, verses 9 and 10. A, a, a Christian Sabbath rest is basically daily living in Christ, every day living in Christ. Uh, I like the way John uh, MacArthur observed this idea. Here's what he said. The fourth command is the only one of the Ten Commandments that is non-moral and purely ceremonial. Uh, It's unique to the Old Covenant, unique to Israel. Uh, The other nine relate to spiritual and moral absolutes that are repeated and expanded in the New Testament very clearly for us. But Sabbath observance is never recommended or commanded in the New Testament. You can't find it. So, so the idea then is that it, there is freedom that's been given by God as to whether or not any day is honored above another. The requirement, though, is very clear that whichever position is taken it, is that it is the, for the purpose of glorifying God. Okay? And that kind of goes along with four, Romans 14, 5, and 6. The idea that no believer has the right to impose his views in this on anyone else. Uh, I'll take you to Galatians 4. Galatians 4, 9 and 10 as support for this idea. Uh, Paul says, but now that you have come to know God, I'd rather be known by Him. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves do you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And uh, also in, um, in Colossians, uh, chapter 2 and verse 6, the idea here that as you have received Christ as Lord, so walk in Him. The daily walking, rooted and built up, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Basically, uh, there are other places where Paul basically says, don't let anybody be your Lord in regard to a day except Jesus. Except Jesus. So where does that leave us with this? Uh, I'll throw a couple things out in relation to these big themes. First of all, with relation to God's word uh, rightly divided being our our, uh, our, the governor of our behavior, Jesus has already said that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He did not come to abolish, but to fulfill them, which meant to bring out their full meaning, their true meaning to light. The Pharisees had made a day meant for rest, a day meant to relieve burdens into a burden. Okay? According to God's will, then, his intent for the Sabbath was mercy. Verse 7 of Matthew 12. Mercy from God to man and mercy from man to man. It was not meant to be a you got to play by the rules or else you're in trouble kind of day. It was not meant to be a day where you look and see if anybody broke the rules. Christians in the New Testament are not instructed to strictly observe the Sabbath legalistically. But we need rest. And I think we've lost a sense of rest in our hurried lives. I mean, most of our days are filled with so many activities, we wear ourselves out. So the idea is that one in seven is a gift from God. So if we're going to acknowledge God's greatness in Christ, 
then here's what we ought to do. Receive the gift with thankfulness and enjoy it. And what's the gift? One day in seven to rest from your labors. Don't take it to the extremes of forced adherence or giving no thought to it at all. There's a legalistic and a licentious extreme on both sides of this this question. The idea is, do not impose a standard on others of what they need to do on a certain day, but celebrate God's merciful gift of a day of rest once every seven days. That's the, that's the idea. I've got a second question. And you, you might have wondered this as well, because Jesus says, hey, if you had known what it meant, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So the question, is it ever okay to judge? As long as we, and I'll just say this, as long as we make the differentiation between judging and condemning. It's never okay to condemn. Not for us. In in verse 1 of chapter 7, Jesus said, Do not judge, so you will not be judged. But in, in John 7, in verse 24, Jesus says, Do not judge according to appearance but judge with righteous judgment. So we judge wrongly if we have no clear evidence of sin when we base it on appearance rather than truth. We come to a conclusion about someone just because of what we see. Okay? Uh, we judge wrongly if we condemn someone from what, something we're doing ourselves. Romans 2 talks about that. Um, if we're going to honor God's word, then we need to, to do what it says. Judge with righteous judgment. Um, the idea, according to God's will, is this then. Exercise the mercy rule. Mercy. Uh, if it's a matter of opinion, it's wrong to judge. Romans 14. Uh, if you don't extend mercy, you're taking God's place. You're now becoming, like James 4 says, you're, 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 Lord, you're, you're becoming the judge. So here's why Jesus said, if you understood this. I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. He's basically telling them, You're taking it too far. You need a careful balance. To judge is to decide. To condemn is to take it further and pass the sentence. Uh, Often I have noticed that that Matthew 7, 1 gets quoted by those who don't want their deeds exposed. Hey, look, Jesus said don't judge. Just bring him to John 7. Hey, but we're supposed to judge with righteous judgment. We're not going to go off appearances here. Okay? And there are examples of righteous judgment in, in Scripture. Uh, if you want to take note on this one, 2 Thessalonians 3.6. 2 uh, Thessalonians 3.14 and 15. 1 Timothy 6, 2 through 5. Romans 16, 17 and 18. How about when, when Paul told the Corinthians that they had dishonored God by not judging the wicked man in their midst? He said, remove him from your midst. So there's a, a place for this. The idea is this. It doesn't mean we can't disagree. It means that God's word applied by God's spirit must govern our behavior and govern the way we disagree. So we ought to disagree humbly, gently, patiently, kindly, prayerfully, cautiously, mercifully, and not the way that that we're tempted to disagree. In terms of God's greatness, the idea would be that we judge, we, we seek to judge with righteous judgment, and we reserve final judgment for the judge, the capital J judge, God. 
Okay, that leads me to the, the, the last question I'm going to look at, and it's this. Probably the most common thing that we deal with as it relates to these verses in Matthew 12. And it is, what do you do when you have been unjustly condemned and accused? Or, uh, what, what to do? And, and, and then what do you do if you're tempted to do it or you've done it? So what do you do when condemned or tempted to condemn or when guilty of doing so? And just three quick things as it results, relates to God's word and God's will and God's greatness. The first relating to God's word uh, governing our behavior. First of all, you got to deal with it. You just have to deal with it biblically. Simply deal with it biblically. I'm surprised at how many Christians seem ignorant of what the Bible says, or they simply choose to ignore what the Bible says to do. So here it is: if a fellow believer has sinned against you, you're to do one of two things: either choose to overlook the offense. Proverbs 19:11: A man's discretion makes him slow to anger. It is his glory to overlook a transgression. Or you go to him in private and you show them their error. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If he listens to you, this is the brother in Christ. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. All is well, you let it be. If he doesn't listen, you have more work to do and more soul searching and more praying to do. What do you do when you've wronged someone else? That was really clear in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Jesus said, if you're uh, presenting your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Clearly it's brother has something against you rightly. You did something wrong to them. Here's what you're to do. You're to humble yourselves and you're to go and make it right. Very clear. You need to speak truth to yourself and to others in both scenarios. You're to let the word of God applied by the spirit of God change you. Think about Romans 8.1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Uh, Romans 8.1 is built on Romans 1 through 7. All that is said in chapters 1 through 7 and you come to verse 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So the question we have to ask ourselves is have I uh, condemned others needlessly? Like on all the way to passing judge uh, sentence. Have I put my opinions above God's word? Am I a destroyer or builder of unity? Do I twist God's word to make it say what I want it to say? Am I merciful or hateful? God's word speaks to all of it. You look at the back of your sermon notes, there's verses that speak to every one of those questions. But let the word of God change you. Some of us are guilty of condemning ourselves for sins confessed, repented, and forsaken. Who gives us the right to do that to ourselves? We're not our own Savior and Lord. So who gives us the right? Only our adversary, the devil, who is seeking someone to devour. You've got to apply Romans 8.1 to yourself as well when you're condemning yourself. We are instructed in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 11, to examine ourselves, but not to condemn ourselves. We're to judge ourselves, not condemn ourselves. The next thing relating to God's will being our deepest desire is this. Cling to God's mercy. Just cling to God's mercy and let God do the judgment, judging. Mercy is pity. Mercy is compassion. And, and Jesus shows that. He took, at the cross, he took all the punishment our sins deserved. He, he holds back. We ought to be thankful for the mercy of God that holds back what our sins deserve. And A.W. Tozer said, said it really well. He said, if people knew you like God knows you, the people that condemn you, they would have more reason to condemn you. <laughs> they would know more about you. So just be thankful for God's mercy. 
See and savor the goodness of God in holding back what your sins deserve. Let God do the judging. Resist the temptation to be both uh, judge and, and jury and executioner. God is one day going to wrong all rights. Uh, excuse me, right all wrongs. Right all wrongs. Don't write that down. Some wrongs are going to remain unchecked, though. God in his sovereign will has a reason for that in allowing that. But here's what you ought to do. See opponents as blessings. See your opponents as blessings. They can teach you more than a friend can at times. Many are sincerely wrong, so you reject falsehood, but you, you find the nugget of truth and learn from it. There's always a nugget, there's always a little kernel of truth in what the opponent is saying. So find it, humbly grow from it. Dr. Alex Montoya says, says it this way, those who hurt you the most need you the most. So see them as a blessing and see them as someone who you could reach out to and help. And in that process, God will protect you. God will watch over you. He will not break the bruised reed. He will not snuff out the smoldering wick. He will deepen you. He will grow you thicker skin. And he'll make you more like Jesus. So you can truly forgive. Don't allow the remembrance of that sin, either real or imagined, to flavor your interactions with other people. Because your honor and your feelings are not of first importance. God's glory is of first importance. So don't let the cancer of bitterness set in. The last thing, relating to God's greatness and Christ being our primary focus, love Jesus above all. Love Jesus above all and live for him every day. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, that uh, those who, who used to live for themselves should no longer do that, but should live for, for, for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The Jesus has preeminence. He has preeminence. He rules over every day. He's the one who made the idea of day he created the world. He sustains the world. Uh, he oversees it. He has the right to do with it and us as he sees fit. Do you think about this for a moment? When we say Jesus is Lord, what we're saying? When Jesus said, I am Lord of the Sabbath, and we acknowledge that. No, but by the, we can't do that by, except by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is Lord. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit and really mean it. When we say that, we're basically saying Jesus rule over me. Jesus, I, I, I lay down my will for yours. Jesus, I lay down my words for yours. Jesus, I lay down my, my seeking for greatness to magnify yours. That's what we're saying when we say Jesus is Lord. We ought not to use it lightly. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for who you are as Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you are Lord of all the Sabbath, and, and everything. Thank you, Lord, that you want us to understand who you are as Lord so that we would truly praise you and that we would truly stay away from false condemnation. Lord, I pray you would give us grace to cling to your mercy, to love, to love Jesus above all. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.